My name is Johnny Ball, and I'm the founder of Campaign Force, a not-for-profit that inspires, trains, and coaches the armed forces community to stand up and serve again. I've served on the front line of military operations and in civilian life, the front line of UK politics. This Veterans in Politics podcast is a set of interviews brought to you by Campaign Force and sets out to explore how the military community can help make our politics a better place. I lean into my little black book of contacts and sit down with individuals from across the world of politics, sharing secrets, giving tips and advice and inspiring the next generation. We are Campaign Force. This is the Veterans in Politics podcast. Let's introduce you to our guest. This podcast series was recorded over Zoom during the lockdown period. This was part of an exclusive event laid on for veterans and serving personnel. We'd like to thank our guests for allowing us to release part of this conversation for you in podcast format. In this episode, we meet Home Office Junior Minister Andrew Lewer, MBE, MP. Although not a veteran, Andrew is the veteran of politics, serving in local government, the European Parliament and UK Parliament during his career, the only current MP to have done so. He's also a huge supporter of the armed forces, particularly the reserves, having recently asked the Prime Minister at Prime Minister's Questions to support 103 Battalion Remy, who are headquartered in his Northampton South constituency. This chat is packed full of advice from Andrew's insight into politics and he's keen to encourage veterans and reservists to stand up and serve again. It's time for you to listen to the conversation. I suppose the first thing to underline is that this, despite that uh, little record of mine, my little USP of being a, the only council leader, MEP, MP, getting into politics wasn't planned and it, it therefore isn't the story of one of those or as soon as I left university I became a policy advisor and then a SPAD and then you know it wasn't one of those sort of um, uh, trajectories at all it all happened um, pretty much by accident or at least it happened having had a, a real life or a different life before the politics took over which I suppose is is particularly relevant to uh, to this uh, uh, meeting um, that I certainly believe that having had real life experiences and done other things, uh, nothing as exciting as uh, the armed forces for me, but a career in publishing um, and going into politics, not because you've got some sort of master plan to become the cabinet minister or the prime minister, but just seeing how it goes, seeing how it feels and doing it for other reasons than um, some sort of, master plan uh, I think has a lot to be said for it so yes it also provides a bit of context though that we're having coronavirus we're having sort of online parliament and all sorts of methods of doing things there's a certain number of my colleagues who really really don't like any of that and are, and are completely fixated with the idea that the parliament circa 1896 is the way it has to be and nothing uh, should ever change. Um, now, one of my favourite quotes, and it has been ascribed to um, my favourite military figure, uh, Field Marshal Bill Slim, but various other people um, uh, claim it as well, is that uh, tradition is a tradition is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. Uh, and that's 
very much my view with Parliament and particularly with the way it needs to respond to this crisis, not just in terms of the national NHS effort, et cetera, but in terms of its own day-to-day workings. And that comes from this being the fifth democratically elected chamber that I've been an elected member of. Town Council, District Council, County Council, European Parliament, Westminster Parliament. It helps provide some context. And context is what people from an armed forces background can bring into Parliament, seeing things differently uh, and knowing that if your assistant hasn't remembered to bring a box of paper clips in, that there are actually worse things that can happen to you. Um, it, it is quite an important uh, quality to bring into Parliament. And uh, that's why I agreed to come on today and have a chat to uh, encourage people from that background to at least find out a bit more about it and give it a bit of thought. So I'm really pleased to be here. Thanks very much. Thanks, Andrew, for that that opening uh, gambit. But given your extensive experience in politics, what really motivated you to get involved in politics in the first place? Well, I'd always been uh, interested in politics. And actually, even that has a military route, because the first public affairs thing I, re- I remember getting really seriously involved and interested in was the, was the Falklands conflict in 1982, uh, when I was uh, 10. Uh, and that was the first time I actually started to look at the pe- television news rather than it just being something that was on and my dad was watching um, and started to look at his newspaper and actually read it rather than, again, it being the thing that was on the kitchen table in the morning that, that he read. Um, so there'd always been the interest, and I'd done history at university, been very interested in, in history always. Um, but I never particularly thought about going into it in an elected sense um, until a meeting happened when I was back at home working in publishing and I was a member of the local uh, conservative branch and inevitably given that I was 20 odd years younger than everybody else uh, and when I moved on from that branch 20 years later, I was still 20 years younger than everybody else um, uh, and, and sort of taking notes. And there was a boundary change uh, in Derbyshire Dales District Council. My hometown had grown to have four councillors rather than three. And therefore, there was a, a vacancy. And I've always made that a rule in my political career, which is another maybe a top tip I should pass on, which is never to try and never to try and get rid of someone else, but wait for an opportunity to arise where there's a vacancy. And that was my start. And it's the the thing I've kept to all the way through. So the discussion in the branch was, you know what? I'm various colleagues are saying, I'm fed up of people coming on Derbyshire Dales District Council who are councillors that we turn into conservatives. Why can't we have someone Uh, who's a conservative that we turn into a councillor and that the background to this was that the town council was non-political and the usual routine was to find someone who'd been a town councillor for years on end uh, and persuade them to put a blue rosette on and it happens both ways it similarly happened with the Labour Party locally as well they'd stick a red rosette on a councillor saying come on it's time for you to step up and join the district council and People had got fed up with that because they actually wanted someone who had a genuine interest in politics rather than a general interest in holding a particular position. So 
I'm sitting there nodding safely, saying, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah, we should do that, shouldn't we? And then suddenly realised that everyone in the room was looking at me. Um, and I got sold on the usual thing. And this is something else for everyone here to be aware of. Well, why don't you stand as a counsellor, Andrew? Don't worry. It won't be that much work and it won't take up too much of your time. Well, uh, that is not the case if you take doing this remotely seriously. It will take up a lot of your time. It'll be enjoyable, but it will take up a lot of your time and it will take up a lot of your life. And so I discovered, but I picked up a, a taste for it and things sort of took off from there. So again, uh, all the way through not nudging anyone else out or displacing anybody else, but filling vacancies, uh, mm. it, it went like this. District Council 03, County Council 05, Leader of the Opposition at the Council 07, Leader of the County Council 09, Deputy Chairman of the Local Government Association uh, 2011, MBE and MEP 2014, MP uh, 2017. Uh, and all the way through, uh, the District Council's boundary change created a new seat. The County Council uh retirement 2005 leader of the conservative group retirement 2007 well i will admit in 2009 i didn't wait for someone to step aside we did actually win that election and displace the the, the, the former political control but i'm talking about what you do within your own party whichever party it is there similarly a, a retirement in 2014 for the european parliament and similarly uh, as Johnny and Art know in particular in 2017, a vacancy somewhat unexpectedly arose in Northampton South, which I filled as well. And even with my new job as Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Home Office, I only expressed an interest and pitched in for that because uh, my predecessor had been promoted up to the Whip's office. So I wasn't trying to say, can you elbow that bloke out so I can have his job, please? Because although it's great at the time and you get the job, fantastic, you'll always have that person there you'd always have that group of people knowing that you gave them the elbow to advance your own interests and it, it usually comes back to bite you at some point wow you've um you've certainly risen up through the ranks and uh, also been in positions of leadership which is really interesting to us in the armed forces community who are obsessed with leadership what kind of qualities did you look for in your team when you're in when you're in that position and also do you think they're compatible with members of the armed forces community well i mean the key bit of, of of characteristic that was vitally important when i became leader of the county council uh was loyalty uh and the reason that that was so important was as well as it just generally being in life and in politics is that we uh, we had a majority of one uh, and it was the first change of administration uh, in that council since 1977 and I found myself as the uh, the youngest county council leader uh, in the country uh, all at the same time so therefore we had a team where nobody could decide to absent themselves from the meeting or say, oh, well, I might make myself a bit unpopular with my local, so I'm going to sit this one out. Because if any one member of the team sat out, then we lost the vote. And in four years, we didn't lose a single vote in council or in committee. 
because people stuck together, but also because of no surprises. That was the other key bit. Never dropping something on people and, and, and discussing things fairly carefully with people um, if they weren't very happy about it. I was also, I think, assisted by the fact that as my chief whip at the county council, I had a, a recently retired uh, Army Signal Staff Sergeant um, who understood these sort of dynamics and, and also worked in this, that sort of classic uh, uh, NCO officer sort of uh, style of, of good cop, bad cop with me that he'd kick off and tear strips off people who'd forgotten to vote or done something wrong and so on. And then uh, I'd go and see them or they come and see me and I'd give them a cup of tea and soothe them down and chat them around a bit. And both parts of that dynamic were necessary to keep things in order. Um, but it did work very well. And I miss that. And I miss that in coronavirus particularly, because although we're doing a good job in the Parliament office, it is all about persuading and getting in touch with other people to do things. Whereas when I was leader of the county council, I was doing the thing. So it was much more stressful because the buck absolutely stopped with me when it came to the uh, adult care of the elderly population of the county, the child protection of 100,000 young people, everybody's roads and traffic safety accidents, etc. Um, so I do miss that. And, and I hope perhaps, Johnny, that's a bit of an advert for local government. Rather. Absolutely, Andrew. Yeah, that's certainly something we flag wave at our workshops in terms of signposting towards local government. And you've just demonstrated the importance of the responsibility and the impact that you can have uh, in local government from your experience. You're a brilliant advocate for it, understandably. But of course, you didn't just stop at local government. You went on into Brussels and the European Parliament. What was it really like there? What was Brussels like? What were your frustrations? What did you achieve? I know you described yourself as a, a, a reluctant leaver, and I don't want to get into sort of a leave versus remain debate here, but what was your experience like there? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm slightly counterintuitive as being someone who actually ended up going for leave, and once we went for leave, took a fairly hardline stance about it in that if you're going to do it you needed to do it properly in that i i don't mind admitting and it does surprise people but i really really enjoyed being a member of the european parliament uh, there was a huge amount to be said for it and i had some really really good colleagues um, and two things particularly come to mind one when i did get selected for northampton south and therefore uh, packed my bags in Brussels and packed up my office and either shipped or physically brought it all home. Um, it was the last time I actually ever left the country. I haven't flown or been abroad for three years now. So the last time I ever left the country was when I packed my office up as an MEP. Um, but several of my MEP colleagues said to me, oh, it's such a shame you've only done two terms, Andrew. It doesn't feel like eight years. You know, it's such a shame. And actually, it was only three years. I'd only been an MEP for three years, but I'd made such good friends and enjoyed it so much it, to them and me in a good way, I hope. Uh, it seemed like uh, it seemed like longer. And the other thing that was good about the European Parliament was that within the European Conservative Reformist group, at least, you did get a lot of credit for what you'd done before. So. Within five weeks of being newly elected as a member of the European Parliament, I was appointed the coordinator, that is the lead member, not just for 
British Conservatives, but for the whole European Conservative movement for both of the uh, committees that I was on, uh, the Education and Culture Committee and the um, Regional Development Committee. Regional Development Committee was the second highest spending uh, uh, committee in the entire European Parliament, second only to agriculture. Regional development was a huge, huge amount of money straight in there because it's a committee structure. There are no cabinet members in the European Parliament. Being the lead member on your committee is the most senior position that you can hold straight away because of recognition of having been a county council leader, because of recognition of having been a university governor for um, many years prior to that, and recognition at the time of having just come off being a, a, a chairman of a UNESCO World Heritage Site as well. So lots of recognition for what you've done. Frustration in Westminster, by contrast, that you have to go through all of the motions, no matter how seen you are or what you've ever done before, to get anywhere. And I'm stating that as a fact rather than saying it's a positive, because I'm not sure that it is. And I think it actually puts a lot of people off that if you've been a, a particularly senior person in whatever career you've done before, you know, if you've got yourself up to a fairly senior military rank, if you've run your own business, if you've been a senior partner in a law firm or so on, going back right down to the bottom uh, as an MP, you've got the honour and privilege of serving, of course, you've got a constituency to look after. But in terms of if you're looking ministerially, if you're looking at seniority, then the contrast is that in other areas of politics I've been in, the, the seniority and achievements you've achieved before count straight away, whereas in Westminster, uh, they, they, they tend to not. And this has led to, I mean, people like Archie Norman was chief executive of ASDA, one of the largest companies in the country, was still told, yes, keep your nose clean for a year or two and we might let you be a PPS and carry notes around for a junior minister. It's a strange sort of system. I think that ministerial part of politics is the one bit that we all tend to understand. I think it's probably the most visible part, uh, particularly with the coronavirus briefings where we saw, I have seen ministers rotate in and out to deliver those briefings. And of course, the satirisation of that life through, yes, minister. But what is actually day-to-day life like for politicians in parliament? Is it is it like a, a modern day Hogwarts? What's it actually like? Yeah, it is. And, and again, I think the experience of having been in other uh, political environments was helpful for me because although it was still a lot to take in and very different, going from being an MEP to being an MP was a lot less different than going from virtually anything else to being an MP, you know. Um, there was there were two of us in in my party who went from being a member of a parliament to being a member of another parliament, which is quite different than coming from uh, any other sort of background. And I think particularly uh, a background where you've had a lot of personal control. And and I certainly found as a council leader, some of the best and worst people I had were people who'd come from a business background. Because for one thing, they were used to being in charge and suddenly you had to go through council offices to get anything done, which was very round and about for them and quite frustrating. And also added to that frustration, and I think this is 
especially the case for people from a military background as well, is that if you're trying to get things done and changed in politics, then achieving one of the 10 things that you want to achieve is a massive result. Whereas uh, in most other walks of life, in business, in the military, you set yourself 10 targets and you're disappointed if you only achieve eight or nine of them, where it's exactly the other way around politics. So it can be very, very frustrating. Um, and that requires a lot of, of patience and, and sometimes a rather philosophical approach, which you have to work hard at sometimes not to let that slide into actually being uh, cyn- cynical about. OK, um, well, I mean, you've got such a vast array of experience in politics at every level from local government right through the European Parliament and now Parliament. But what is it that you're really passionate about? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning and back into that office to to fight another day? Well, I think that's that's genuinely twofold. There's the sort of macro and micro to that. The, the micro getting out of bed in the morning is the individual people that you're able to do something very specifically for. Um, I mean, the case that uh, we often cite for this is a guy called Joe Robinson who was um, uh, found himself stuck over in Jamaica even though he was a British national and entitled to live in, in, in the UK. He got caught up in Windrush and there was an individual that, 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 that me and my office sort of really worked hard on, went to town on, were quite tenacious about and got him back into the UK. So there's an individual where the effort we made completely transformed his life in a positive direction. So every now and then you get an intensely personal result like that. Otherwise, uh, the macro is, is, the, is the sort of policy direction and the sort of the, the really big issues. And that is where there's an interesting dynamic for military figures to, to face particularly. And I will relate this to Brexit, but not talking about the rights and wrongs of Brexit, but simply the situation that it placed uh, colleagues in, including myself, where we ended up being uh, torn between two loyalties, a loyalty to our manifesto, which stated certain things, and a loyalty to our leader who was stating other things. And that's what caused a party that normally prides itself on its on its steadfast loyalty and solid voting and what have you to actually divide as dramatically as it did. But where in some respects that presents a problem for people with a military background, following the flag, doing as you're told, following the, the orders and so on. It also, I think, relates to the as- other aspect of, of a military personality, which is, which is strength of character and resilience. And that is actually being prepared to go against a lot of colleagues and go against a particular line and and go against any sort of carefully thought out career plan. Because you've got colleagues within this who were voting against the government and voting against three line whips for whom uh, such a concept they would would be one that they never want to have to have to have faced. They weren't professional professional awkward squad members. They were people who were faced with a. Uh, an almost impossible situation. And there were, interestingly, quite a large number of, of figures with a military background who, who did 
take the decision to do that and I think had to draw from reserves of strength of character to do so. Yeah, um, yeah, it's really fascinating to be a, an observer to all of this at the moment. And we keep an eye on the military performers in Parliament at the moment, of which there are now 50 members from the armed forces community, both regular and reserve. And indeed, some of those are cutting through now and becoming ministers. Uh, so obviously, Johnny Mercer, the veterans minister, who we've had on this podcast. But um in terms of ministerial life, within reason, what's it like? Can you give us a bit of an insight? I mean, you might want to tell us a bit what it's been like working for Pretty Patel. You know, I've known Pretty quite a while, and I've always got on uh, extremely well with her. I think she is a very straightforward character who doesn't necessarily play the Westminster and Whitehall game in the same way that many of her colleagues do in terms of being um, robustly clear about what she expects uh, to be delivered. And I wonder that the modern concept of bullying and allegations of bullying seems at, at some stages to actually move into somebody just very bluntly telling someone else what they want them to do, which to me doesn't seem like bullying. But having had a career in local government and having had local government officers to deal with, and certainly I think coming into that, having had the other party in control for the previous third of a century, um, it, it was sometimes the case that you got more results by working out the personality you were dealing with and what they would respond to uh, in, in, a, in a different sort of way. So it's been interesting with her and other people I've worked with to see how those different leadership styles uh, work. Now, the Home Office is a huge department and therefore it's a very different dynamic to the uh, roles I had previously where I was parliamentary private secretary to the Northern Ireland office uh, and then they put Wales in and then they put Scotland in so I ended up being uh, fairly uniquely again three times parliamentary private secretary for three different government departments um, but nevertheless all three of those departments very small dealt with devolved uh, administrations and therefore you had a very personal and direct relationship with your Secretary of State and Minister, singular. So there was a team essentially of four of you, Secretary of State, Minister, Parliamentary Private Secretary uh, and the Whip. Whereas now you've got this huge and, and, and quite complex system where you've got ministers in the Home Office and the Justice Department doing dual roles and overlapping and so on. And it's been it's been tough because I only got this job in the Home Office just as the coronavirus issue was unfolding. So I haven't had the time to form the personal relationships and get my head around the pluses and minuses and the way people operate uh, that I would normally do. And, and, and that's that's my MO really as a politician is, is I'm quite the sort of people person. I'm interested in people and what makes them tick and then work out how to deliver on the policy rather than other people who are who are much more sort of policy focused and 
and sometimes even regard i think the fact that people have personalities and different personalities as a, as a bit of an irritant rather than a source of fascination thanks to our guests and thank you for listening if you've enjoyed this podcast hit subscribe now alternatively you can support our mission by checking out in the show notes below where you can rate donate or become our mate thank you